Good morning, everybody. I hope you enjoyed a cooler day yesterday after the week. Don't watch the weather, I think more's coming. Good to be with you. Those of you that don't know me, my name's Andrew, and uh, it's my privilege to pastor here and to lead you in the word this morning. And as I said, Last week, I said that we were going to start looking at Ephesians over the next little while, and I encouraged you to um, read Ephesians. Anyone get a chance to do that? That's great. If you didn't, that's fine. Ephesians is something you can read all the time. It's like one of these shows, these series that people watch again and again and again, because you always find something new, and that's really, really worth reading. So I encourage you to have a look at it again. And so we're going to look at Ephesians for a little while and there'll be a few visiting preachers in between, a few different bits and pieces, but trying to, have a, have, um, trying to get through Ephesians and to understand what God wants to say to us as individuals and as a church. Um, but before you begin, uh, when, you, when you look at a book or, or Ephesians, it's really important to give a bit of context. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on that today, a little bit of context, give you a bit of an idea of... of who, who, who wrote it, where it was, what was going on there, um, etc. And many of you will know much of this sort of stuff, but it's good just to gather it together before we dive right in. So the book of Ephesians was written by Paul. He was imprisoned in Rome, a real prison or a house prison, we're not really sure, uh, to the church about 10 years, approximately 10 years after he left them, after he left the Ephesian church. He planted the church. He planted the church while he was on his second missionary journey around mm, AD 50 um, with this couple and he met this couple in, in Ephesus called Priscilla and Aquila and he boarded with them. They were tent makers and he was working with them and they, you can read this story in Acts 18 by the way if you want to, and, and he planted the church with them in Ephesians, in Ephesus. And he leaves Ephesus shortly afterwards and they meet this guy called Apollos who um, is a religious person and speaks really well, but his message is a little bit off-centre. So they spend a bit of time, uh, Acts says, teaching him the way of Jesus, and he gets it, and all of a sudden the lights come on for him, and he becomes this really powerful preacher, goes head-to-head, toe-to-toe with the Jewish authorities in public, and the church actually starts to grow. A year or two later, Apollos is in Corinth, and Paul happens to come back through Ephesus, and begins teaching, or continues if you like, teaching along the same lines that Apollos was, the way of Jesus. There were many people that had lots of questions and receiving the Holy Spirit. He tries to teach in the synagogue. This is in Acts 19. He tries to get a, a Guernsey in the synagogue, in the official church. Doesn't go too well. They, the establishment, they don't like his message. It kind of rocks a boat a little bit. And they publicly, publicly begin to refute the way and push, get back against Paul's message. So Paul goes off to teach in what they call the Hall of Tyrannus. And you might have read that in there and you might wonder, what is the Hall of Tyrannus? Well, Tyrannus was a guy who apparently had a bit of money and was educated and he had some, um, a lecture hall or a school or a place that he owned where people could come and lecture. And Paul went there and it took off, it went off his preaching huge success there were miracles happening and if you read some of the stuff the sick were coming people that just touched Paul's handkerchief were healed now that could be weird or it could be great you know depending on where you are but that's what was happening it's what it says in there you know the people that touch his handkerchief but anyway there was these this is really funny I had to tell you this there's these dodgy magicians that see this and think 
surely we can do this too. They'd watched Paul cast out demons and they figure we're going to do this now as well. And so they jump in, there's a guy that's got a demon and they go to try to cast out the demon and it works, half. The demon comes out but chases them and they run away scared. So it's kind of a funny story. But what happened out of that is other magicians and people that were in that day, they got it and they saw it and they thought, wow, this stuff is real. And so all these magicians went and had this, this book burning. They all burnt their, their, their spell books. Um, people stopped buying all these mini idols. That was a real market of mini idols in there, or different, different gods. And people stopped buying those, um, and particularly from the Temple of Artemis. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. And there were all sorts of people becoming believers, Gentiles, Greeks, it was right across the water from Greece. It was a, a shipping trading route. And so a lot of Greeks, Greeks were, were deep thinkers, but there were Greeks that were coming to the way. Intellects, government people, travellers, women. Oh, Hayden, the Dutchies would say. You know, women were coming. And, and it, was, it was really becoming this, it's quite a powerful movement where God was moving. But the interesting thing is people weren't buying the idols anymore. And there was a few guys that were making the idols. That was their business. No one was buying them. Business was not going well. This was not COVID at all. This was something else. Business was really being affected. So one of the guys gathers a few other guys, idol makers, gets them together and figures, we've got we to we refute this. We've got to go against this because we're losing money hand over fist. And they begin a kind of an uprising. They begin, to, uh, get the, like, begin to talk to the government and say, look, commerce is being ruined by these people. We're not selling idols. We're not making any money. We can't pay taxes, etc., etc." And there's an uprising. There's a riot and all these accusations fling around. They take it to the court. But the court dismisses it by saying, they don't worry us. We know that our goddess is true. And they're not saying ours isn't true. They're just saying theirs is truer. Eh, we know better, let's not write, let's be civilised. They were trying to be a, a civilised society. Paul, at that point, decides it's probably time to leave. And you can read, if you read Acts 20, you'll, you'll see that Paul had quite an emotional farewell. He loved the church in Ephesus. But he leaves Timothy there to help the church continue to grow. And this is how the church in Ephesus begins to establish itself in that kind of city. Well, what kind of city was it? Let me tell you a little bit about the city. The word Ephesus means desirable. It was a desirable place to be. And I've got a few pictures up there of some of the, uh, the things that were part of the city. You might have heard some of this before. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's in modern-day Turkey now. It's still there. It was a major trade route. I told you about the, the ships that came over from Greece but also three major roads came into there and went through there. So most of the trade and most of the stuff that happened in the developed world then or the world that was then happened through there. It was an economic powerhouse. It was a melting pot of lots of different cultures. You can imagine people coming in on the roads, traders and from Greece and, and the different cultures all coming together and you can imagine what the port was like. It would have been an exciting place to people watch if you're a people watcher. There was a melting pot of many expressions and ideas. It was an intellectual center. The largest library known to man was there. And I think I've got a picture of that. That is the, on the right, the far right. The largest library known to man at the time was there. There were schools, there were lecture halls, there were universities. It was the center of new thought, 
and learning, so new ideas and things that were a little bit different. The Temple of Artemis was there, and the temple, I've got a picture, that's in the middle there. The Temple of Artemis was a huge, was the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Still recognises one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was their major goddess, and it was a really weird, freaky, a little bit off religion where they had temple prostitutes and you had to sleep with the prostitutes in order to show your allegiance to Artemis and it was quite debauched and, and, and quite bad. But that was there. It had the largest theatre of the time, the largest cultural centre and that's the theatre there. Now I don't, I reckon the MCG probably holds a few more but you could pack a few people in there, seats didn't look real comfortable though. Had a huge sports stadium. It was a place where almost anything goes and where the envelope could be pushed. Where new thought, new ideas, new ways to see things was accepted there. It was an important city and one of incredible power. Now, can you imagine the challenge for the church in a place like that? It wasn't only the external influences. It wasn't just like the church got together and said oh, that's so bad out there and preaching just to the converted and everyone's agreeing. The church was constantly battling lots of these influences inside the church. Intellects were questioning things, teaching falsehoods, maybe teaching a bit of compromise. We can, we can take this bit of the culture in with us, it won't do too much damage or we can teach our children this. There were cultural clashes, all the different cultures. This is how we worship God. No, this is how we do it. This is how we love to do things. This festival is what we remember. Well, no, that's more important. That's not as important as our festival, etc. There was economic inequality in the church. Those that were struggling, the rich people were not looking after those that were struggling. There was injustice. There were moral compromises in the church. It was just a microcosm of what was happening on the outside because it was full of humans that lived in the society on the outside as well. And the church was going to need supernatural courage and godly encouragement to live in the truth, to walk it out and to grow the kingdom of God. Now, Paul knew all this and he had kept close contact with the church in the, in the 10 years that he was gone with the leadership of the church. And now he sends this letter. And unlike most of Paul's letters, this one doesn't address one particular issue. Most of Paul's letters will address an issue that he sees, one particular thing. He wasn't responding to uh, a theological problem or a moral problem particularly. He wanted to protect against future problems by reminding them of the rich blessings they possess. And he shares with them again, because you can imagine he shared when he planted the church with the people, he shares with them again profound theological truths in the first half of Ephesians, if you've read the first half. And then encouraging them to mature in their faith. Then he goes on to encourage the community, the church, the community of faith there to walk in accordance, walk like the people that he just described in the first half of the book. And he even goes on to expect them to. And right at the end, he teaches them to stand firm and we know that one with the armor and we'll get to that so how to see themselves rightly in light of the rich truths that he shares with them and how to live their lives effectively for the kingdom because of them and so i'm going to call this series riches and responsibilities 
there are so many other things I, you, you could call it. You know, I had a look at what some other people have, have sort of, how they've summarised or called it. And some have said, sit, walk, stand. Sit and understand how, who you are. Walk in it and then stand firm. Or wealth, walk and warfare. And that one nearly tempted me. That was, a, that was an interesting one. Or encouraged and challenged. But we're going to go with riches and responsibility. So we're going to engage in some R&R. Who doesn't like R&R? on and off for the next short season and you know when you think of the ephesian church or ephesus or the society there there might be there could and there might be some easy comparisons for us to make between ephesus the society there and our world today there might even be some comparisons we could make with the challenges and the opportunities a church or the church has in that kind of society and maybe those challenges aren't just challenges of church or corporate, but even us as individual Christians, you might be able to make some comparisons there. Maybe, and it'll be good to notice those comparisons. What we can do, though, and what we should, and most definitely and confidently can identify with, is the riches that Paul talks about, the blessings and the call and the power that God gives us to walk out that call. We can identify with that. This book is chock full of eternal, magnificent and life-changing truth if you'll let it sink in. And like the Ephesians, it'll be good for us to see ourselves in the light of those truths and how we should live and how we could live because of them. I love Ephesians. Some of you know that. I talk about it a lot. I love this book. So get ready to be blessed as you read it and, and uh, learn more about it and read around it. If you're a bit curious, have a read around it and find out how it came about. You know, right at the end, it doesn't stop there, right at the end, you will see right in Revelation, we may not get there, but in Revelation 2, Paul talks to the church, or John talks about the church in Ephesus. That's still there. Get ready to be encouraged, enlivened, and maybe even challenged. Because how we see ourselves really does impact how we live our lives let me say that again what i learned one of the things i've learned from this how we see ourselves really does impact how we live our lives makes a difference so let's dive into the first chapter we're going to read the first chapter ephesians 1 1 to 14 and it'll be on the screen but if you have your bible have a look along with it if you can but I'm going to read with you from the first 14 verses. And we're just going to look at those this morning. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, we know it's Paul by now, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, he loves them a lot, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a typical greeting I love you guys, I'm thinking of you, I'm sitting here in a prison in Rome and I could be thinking of myself, but I'm thinking of you. I want to tell you this, he dives straight in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. What a magnificent way to kick off a letter to encourage someone. What a great way for Paul to start. And what a great way for us to start as well. I call this sermon, if you like, richly blessed on my notes. Or, in Christ you are. Paul starts with a lavish description of our possessions in Christ. He's actually gushing. If you read it again and again... If you read it in the original language, if you could read the original language, it was one sentence, the whole lot, in the original language. Can you imagine that? It's like he, there's no time for him to put any punctuation in or to breathe, because I have so much to tell you and so many good things. In the original language, verses 3 to 14 are one sentence. And I think if you look in most English um, translations, it's only two He's gushing, it's powerful, it's poetic, it's emotional. You can feel Paul's passion in the words, describing in so many ways and so many angles how blessed we are and why. And he begins in verse 3, and this is interesting, he blesses God for blessing us. There's a little hint there that that's our response. That's what our response should be. God has blessed us so much, he begins, I, I'm just blessing God for blessing me so much. It's kind of like that. I can't help but gush back to you because of so much that you've done for me. And so for us, as we begin Ephesians, let's let Paul's words meet us in the same way they might have met the church when it was read out for the very first time made me think of whoever had to read it. If it was poor Timothy, did he get to breathe? Or did he just have to read it in one big sentence? And let's let these words come to us too, because they, God intended them for us too. That's why we have it today. Get ready to be blessed and reminded of who you are in Christ. In these verses, verses 3 to 14, I count 12 blessings, 12 descriptions of who you and I are. So let's have a look at them quickly. Look along with me. These are our possessions in Christ. Or we could say, in Christ you are. And the first one is, and you'll see them on the screen, verse 3, you are blessed. In Christ you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And that is every spiritual blessing. God withholds nothing from us. 
And the reason he doesn't withhold anything from us because it doesn't come because of anything we did or affected because it comes out of his goodness. So why would he withhold any from us? So the first thing in Christ, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. It's there for you and me, for them in Ephesus, but today for you and me, every spiritual blessing. There is no withholding until you reach a certain standard or until you become the the kind of person that God really thought you would be, but you're not quite there yet. doesn't say that at all. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, in Christ you are chosen to be holy and without blame. Now, chosen would, would suggest that he had his mind set on you to choose you, to be holy and without blame, to, to set you apart. Holy means to be set apart for his purposes because he loves us. And that's the only reason. Again, not because of anything you did, nothing that we did. In Christ, you're chosen to be holy and without blame. So you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. I'm not going to go back through and do them all as I get to 12. But you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. But in Christ, you're chosen to be holy and without blame. What a kickoff. Verse 5, you're predestined. Well, there's lots of discussion about predestination. But one thing you can look, if you look up a, if you look up a definition of predestination, that means that someone intended and thought about it and meant for this to happen. And verse 5 says that you are thought of, that you were intended, that you were predestined. He predestined us for adoption. He thought about you. He thought about us beforehand, about bringing us into the family. And the next one is, he adopted us as sons and daughters. Same verse, verse 5. In Christ, you're adopted as sons and daughters. Now, that would have had a huge implication in the culture of the time. Because when you were adopted into a family, and often someone, uh, if they were in really difficult times, they'd lost their family land, they had huge debt, they were enslaved to somebody, they might have had a miserable time, and someone wealthy or someone who owned land adopted them, their debt was immediately wiped. When you were adopted in that culture... You had no more debt. You, had, you owed nobody in your past life anything. In, and more so, you got to share in the riches of the life that you were adopted into. It was almost in that culture like you got a new bloodline. Now, biologically, we know that that's not true. But that's how you were seen by the culture. When you were adopted as a son and daughter, you were given a new bloodline, a new hereditary inheritance line, a new family tree. And Paul says that in Christ, you're adopted as sons and daughters in the, by the purpose of his will. He chose to do that. He wanted to for you. The next one, number five, in Christ, you're accepted in the beloved. Now, do you notice the beloved has a capital B? That's God's family, the beloved. You're accepted into the family of God. Not just accepted into the beloved church of One Hope Community Church or the church of, you know, Central Ephesus, you know, Pentecostal church or whatever it was back then. You're accepted in the beloved, immediate belonging in the family. In Christ, you're accepted into the family of God. Number six, in Christ, you are redeemed through his blood. Verse seven, you've been redeemed through his blood according to the riches of his grace. 
Now, when a slave was redeemed in that culture, again, all the debt was paid off. You owed nothing anymore and you were totally free to be part of society, be part of a family that you were in. And Paul says that we were redeemed through his blood according to his riches. Our sins no longer define us. Our debt is no longer there. We owe no debt. That would have been huge for them to hear that, that God did that. The picture language for them would have been enormous. A redeemed slave would have his debt wiped. There would be no lingering credit history. When he got his mobile phone out, the little guy in Ephesus, and he did credit check, would have come up with a big green light. He would have been lovely. Number seven, in Christ you are forgiven of your sins. Do I need to say any more of that? Romans chapter 5 says it so beautifully, doesn't it? So while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because I guarantee the church in Ephesus were not getting everything right, just as we don't get everything right. But Paul says, in Christ, you're forgiven of your sins. Verse 8 and 9, number 8, in Christ, you're given wisdom and understanding of his will. Now, I had to think about this. I thought, now, we're given understanding, uh, wisdom and understanding of his will. That, that means that we're not just plebs. We're not just brought in as one of the, the multitude, if you like. God actually shares his will and his plan with us as individuals and together as a church. We know his plan. He shared it with us. He says, this is what I'm doing. I'm inviting you to be a part of it. And I'm showing you my wisdom because you're not an animal. You're a human being. I relate with you. I'm sharing my wisdom and my plan. And we're given responsibility and the privilege to work that plan with him. You know, many people have said in history, you know, if you were going to save the world, if you were God and you were going to save the world, why would you use ordinary people like you and me? Because we know that we're not brilliant. My answer is, I have no idea, but he did. And he shares his wisdom with us. We are given wisdom and understanding of his will in Christ. Number nine, verse 11, in Christ we're given an inheritance. It says there in, in verse 11, doesn't it? In him we've ob obtained an inheritance targeted god targeted us and he gave us inheritances i am a rich person i have all the riches and i want to give them to you we're given inheritance it's yours you can have it imagine being adopted by the richest person you know like seriously legally adopted and you become part of the family i remember made me think of and it's a bit bit of a joke i when we lived in holland and we worked as missionaries. Um, mission life was not always, you know, um, easy in terms of things and stuff. But there was um, these big trucks that used to go throughout Holland. And there were so many of them. And it was Boonstra Transport. Right? And I thought, this guy's rich. Look at these trucks. And the other thing was, the CEO of Philips Corporation... His name was Boonstra. And I often thought, I'm going to write letters to these guys and say, remember when you were 18 and you had a bit too much to drink? <laughs> I didn't. That was silly. But, but, you know, this sense that imagine being adopted by someone who is incredibly wealthy that has 
every spiritual blessing and everything that you could need for life, come on in. You're given an inheritance. It's yours. Paul says in Christ, that's what we've been given. Verse 12. We've been Christ, we've been given the praise and glory of God. Now, what does that mean? That means that we can actually be ones who add to his glory. We can contribute to the glory and the praise of God ourselves by doing it, but by causing it as well. And it is our honor to be able to give him glory in Christ. We are to the praise and the glory of God. Verse 12. Number 11, we're nearly there. I said there was 12 of them. This is number 11 in verse 13. Paul says that we, in Christ, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So I'm not just telling you all this stuff Paul says, or God says, I'm not just giving you all this stuff, I'm actually now giving you the Holy Spirit, an ongoing, constant, encouraging presence for all the good times, but also for all the tough times. I'm going to be with you. In Christ, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, courage, direction, God with us. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were given the promised Holy Spirit. And not only is that wisdom for today, that's an assurance of what that inheritance and all the stuff that's gone before. And then number 12, verse 14. In Christ, you're guaranteed of the inheritance until your redemption is fulfilled. And Peter says that so well, doesn't he? In the first chapter of Peter, he talks about you've been um, an inheritance that will never perish, never spoil, never fade, never rust away. This is what Paul's saying. This is a guarantee. And the Holy Spirit is that guarantee of the inheritance until your redemption is fulfilled. You've been redeemed, but it's going to be fulfilled when you, when you come into glory with our Heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit is proof that we will receive the reward promised in our redemption. The inheritance is ours. No one gets to take it away. So in a few short verses, in one sentence in Paul's case, he's just given us 12, and there's probably more in there if you spend more time, he's given us 12 things, 12 blessings. He's blessing God for those blessings that God has given us. How do you feel about that? That's you and me. How does that make you feel? Like encourage, you know, is it a, you know? Pretty good because it actually is about, and look, I, to be honest, I don't feel that all the time when I walk into the office during the week or when I'm struggling with something and, and I don't feel that all the time. And that's why you will have heard me say before, if you're feeling down, read the first four chapters of Ephesians. And if you're still not feeling good after that, read them again. Because it's truth. It's the truth of the word. This is true of each of us here who belong to Jesus. These blessings are all ours in him. Every spiritual blessing is in Christ Jesus. And that's where we find it. And the problem is we keep looking in the wrong place for blessing. That's what the church in Ephesus did. That's what I do. That's what you do. That's what we do sometimes. We look in the wrong place. But Paul says it's in him. It's in Christ it's in the work of Jesus Christ. To become a Christian is to become united with him. And once you have him, you have everything. 
Now, can you see why Paul is blessing and praising God for blessing us? He's modelling what we must do. The same thing. Bless. Give thanks. Enjoy. Bask in the blessings. Be encouraged. Be built up. Be confident. This is what Paul wanted for the Ephesian church. Because he'd heard enough about what was going on. Ten years down the track, he, he wanted them to be able to do that. A church that might have, in, in all the challenges, momentarily forgotten who they were and, and what they had. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon has a couple of things to say um, about our attitude on reading or hearing this. When he talks about Ephesians, I like the way he thinks. Here's a, here's a quote. I've got one or two quotes from him. First one is, I think it's up there. <clears throat> We must not sit here and groaning and crying and fretting and worrying and questioning our own salvation. He's blessed us and therefore we will bless him. If you think little of what God has done for you, you will do very little for him. But if you have a great notion of his great mercy to you, you'll be greatly grateful to your gracious God. Really, that's it, isn't it? You, you, you know, when someone does something amazing for you, it's quite easy to gush and be thankful. And you just need to acknowledge that God does that. Spurgeon goes on to say that we always ought to be thanking God for stuff, for things every day. We do that. We thank God for our food. We thank God for everything. But he says this is different. These spiritual blessings are another level altogether. And here's a great quote. Our thanks are due to God for all temporal blessings. And they are more than we deserve. But our thanks ought to go to God in thunders of hallelujahs for spiritual blessings. A new heart is better than a new coat. To feed on Christ is better than have earthly food. To be an heir of God is better than being the heir of the greatest nobleman, even if he does own a trucking empire. To have God for our portion is blessed. Infinitely more blessed than to own broad acres of land. God has blessed us with spiritual blessings. These are the rarest, the richest, the most enduring of all blessings. They're priceless in value. I couldn't have said it better. He's right, you know. For the Ephesians, this was what Paul wanted to be the engine, the power for them to overcome the things that they were struggling with and to be the people God called them to be. And the same is true for you and I. Why, why, why does God bless us so much? And why does God bless us so lavishly? Why would God do all this? Two things. For his glory. It's clear in there. And we talk about that a lot, don't we? You know, he says that um, in verse 6, 12 and 14, where he talks about the bl three blessings, um, predestination, election and adoption. And it always comes afterwards, unto the praise of his glory, so that he will get the glory. So when we share these blessings... And when we bless him and when we live out these blessings, when we recognize them, give thanks for them and, and live them out and walk them out, God gets the glory. But that's not the only way he gets glory. Verse 10, um, I love verse 10. Verse 10 says, As a plan for the fullness of time, that's when everyone's together, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God gets the glory when we're all united in him, together with him. That brings him glory. He's a powerful God, and that brings him glory. He does powerful stuff. He's great, and he's faithful, and, and he gets glory for that. 
And those things bring him glory. But he's also a loving father, a loving God. He's relational, he's intimate and loving. This is his character. And this is why we were created, out of love and for relationship. And when that's right, and when we're united with him, that glorifies him. That's a picture that brings him glory. We are his crowning glory. And being united with him is the ultimate expression of love, his love, his nature. His love is so great for us that he moved when we wouldn't move. And he promised always to his people that he would love his children even when they didn't love him back. And he did. He sent his son to die to give his life in exchange for ours, satisfying the debt that you and I owed. And all this so that we could be united with him. All this so that we could be with him in relationship. He moved the pieces so the family could be together. And that brings him glory. And it reveals the magnificence of his plan right from creation to now. We can understand that emotion, can't we? We've just had Christmas, we've just had holidays. And, and you, know, you know what it's like when... And you, and you sometimes see pictures on Facebook of someone said, oh, isn't it great? Look, we had the whole family together. You know what it's like? We understand that emotion when a father and, and a mother, dad and mum want so much for the whole family to be together, to be united. And we'll pay a big price for that, won't we? We'll, we'll go a great distance. We'll deal with broken relationships. We'll do whatever it takes because it's such a great thing because we love the family to have the family together. That's our God. That's what he did for you and I. Now, a father who will do that is worthy of our glory and our service. Now, Paul's going to go on in Ephesians more about detailing how inclusive uh, this, this blessing is and, and how wide God's embrace is for different people and different cultures, and that'll include the Gentiles. He'll go on to tell us how we can see it better, how we can recognize it and rejoice in it. Explaining even more how salvation changes our lives and, and how much we belong. And he's going to show us how to live it out as a church, as individuals, in relationships, how to stand when it gets tough and more. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's to come. I said it before. I love this book. I really do. I think it's a gift. Seriously. I hope and I pray that our picture of God gets way bigger that our passion to glorify and praise him grows and our urge to bring him glory with our lives, not just in church, but in whatever we do, explodes to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, you're amazing at just how much you have for us, how much you give for us, how much you do for us, how, how dependable and how faithful you are to your promises. And Lord, we have to confess that we don't always um, probably consciously consider all these blessings and we often don't even deserve them, but praise God. Thank you, Father, that these things come to us not because we deserve them, but because of who you are. Jesus, thank you that your death on the cross was the thing that redeemed us, that set us free from the debt that we owed, that set us free from 
the credit history that we had, the life that we couldn't get out of and gave us a new life and drew us into your family to be united with you, Jesus, and with your Father. Lord, thank you that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. There is so much in there. Lord, teach us, um, even if it's one by one, to own those things, to recognise them, to give thanks for them, to figure out what they mean for each of us in our daily life. So that like Paul, we can bless you because you bless us so richly. In Jesus' name, amen. Different treasures, treasures that aren't... Thank you.